Hello, and welcome to the Reorient Podcast, the show about international issues and international people with an Asian twist. My name is Jesse Friedlander. Okay, well, good morning, good evening, everyone. This is Jesse Friedlander, your host of the Reorient Podcast. I'm back, hopefully better than ever. Very happy on this day, uh, 13th of May, 2023, to have a chance to have a discussion with an eminent analyst, a very seasoned Asia expert, China watcher, and um, someone who has a, a very broad and deep knowledge of what's going on with uh, Asia and China and U.S. and how it all fits together. Mr. Dr. William Henry Overholt. Bill Overholt, welcome to the Reorient Podcast. Thanks, Jesse. So really glad to have you on. Um, Your um, experience stretches back, um, I think, something like five decades. (laughs) Um, So it's extensive, to say the least. And you've looked at, you have a very long resume, and you've looked at um, you know, most countries in Asia, you've looked at democracy and development, you looked at technology and rivalry and competition, you looked at U.S. foreign policy, uh, and the list goes on and on and on. And you've been at the Harvard uh, Kennedy Center now for, um, I think, around 15 years. Um, and, and you've also, before that, we were with a number of think tanks. Um, you've worked, advised uh, governments, both in the U.S. and around Asia. You've published, I think, o- over 10 books, um, and, and, and not to mention countless articles. So uh, I will refer everyone to, um, uh, well, we'll have uh, a link on our website, and you have a long write-up in Wikipedia. But what I'd like to ask you to do, just um, as an inch, uh, sort of uh, introduction, Bill, if you could just sort of briefly go over um, your your background and, and what sort of brought you to Asia and what's been the sort of the general theme in your work um, uh, over your long career. Well, I am a multidisciplinary guy who tries to combine uh, academic theory and and, and, and practical uh, experience. I did mostly sociology as an undergrad, uh, then got a PhD in political science, did some very senior military work as a consultant, um, ended up being a chief regional economist for three investment banks. Uh, my focus has been on these great Asian takeoffs. Uh, the beginning of my career was uh, working with Herman Kahn, explaining to the world uh, the implications of, of the great Japanese economic takeoffs. And Could you share uh, who Herman Kahn um, is or what his role was? Herman Kahn was the country's greatest nuclear strategist, but for my purpose, uh, he wrote a book called The Emerging Japanese Superstate, which was the first book, I think, in 1967 to argue that 
Japan would be, become uh, a tremendously important country. Uh, and we spent a, a lot of our time explaining to the world, especially to the businesses and the US government, how important the rise of Japan was. Uh, and at the same time, refuting some of the, uh, the nonsense uh, that became very common at the time. Uh, the Japanese are going to take over the world. They bought, they bought uh, Rockefeller Center, all of these huge things in the U.S. They're, they're growing three times as fast as the U.S. Uh, the list of worries in Washington about Japan at that time was exactly the same as the the list of worries about China today and uh, the status anxiety panic is exactly the same, uh, just uh, somewhat more mag magnified in the case of China and not modified as it was in the case of Japan by the fact that, that Japan was an ally. So then I spent my career whether I was working in think tanks or, or for three investment banks, uh, basically chronicle, chronicling these great Asian successes. I advised uh, Park Chung-hee and, and his team in South Korea uh, while working closely with the opposition leader, Ken Dae-jung. I worked closely with John Jingguo's team in Taiwan. I got to know Lee Kuan Yew very well in Singapore. And finally, uh, oh, I'd always been interested in China. Uh, my first professional work was, was a memo for Henry Kissinger on whether China could be trusted to honor an idea, uh, a deal about Taiwan. But all this work on the Asian takeoffs came together uh, in a book called The Rise of China, how economic reform is creating a new superpower uh, in 1993. And it was, uh, widely ridiculed at the time. Everybody, uh, all right-thinking people knew that China was going to collapse. So uh, for a couple of years, I was an idiot. And then for a nanosecond, I was, I was a guru. Um, but the result of that book has been to brand me as a China specialist for for the rest of my career. So um, I, I don't think it's an, an overstatement to say that, you know, as we are today, you know, you are in a category of, of, of a, a relatively small category of, of American, um, uh, both academics, but also given you, you know, you have over two decades uh, working in, in investment banks and research. So you, you have a strong footing in the uh, private sector and you've advised a lot of companies and governments. So you, you've really had your, um, your, your, your toes, so to speak, in, in, in all the key um, 
touch points of of the rise of Asia and sort of the impact on on the on the U.S. and and, and international relations in general. And you've done this over you know five decades, so it really is. I think uh, I'm sure the audience can appreciate um, the heft, the intellectual heft, and and the depth of experience you bring to this conversation. So I'm very very pleased to uh, to have you on, and we'll have um, far many two things, far too many things to talk about. And so what I'm going to endeavor to do is just to dive into maybe a couple um, with, you know, uh, a bit of thoroughness so that we can have a uh, at least a, a, a insightful discussion on a couple issues, even though there's so many more that you would be well-placed to talk about. <laughs> um, so what I think to do, uh, what we'd like to do, Bill, if, if you agree, is um, I think the um, the rise of China and the impact on uh, on the world um, in in the rest of Asia, more proximately, and also on the on the U.S. is is becoming a a really heightened issue. So uh, why don't we start with that? Um, you wrote a book about the rise of China becoming a you know global power, um, and even though there were many people um, who were pr- predicting China's imminent demise and collapse, um, and that went back you know uh, probably you know from the you know sort of the the Tiananmen days of 1989, and then even more, and, and a lot of um, economists argue that China's um, economic system was unsustainable. Its political system was unsustainable, um, and that it was all going to end in doom. And uh, meanwhile, China's pretty consistently has grown at amongst the fastest uh, rates of any uh, major economy, and it's done that for uh, really around um, you know four decades. Um, so it's been jaw dropping, and anyone that visits China in recent years is very impressed by the. Um, uh, the quality of its infrastructure and the pervasiveness of its technology, and also the high living standards of of the bulk of its population, and I think people now see that China uh, really is is uh, is becoming a is a great power today and leads in so many industries. Um, is challenging the the U.S. and the West in soft power. Um, Chinese companies are amongst the biggest uh, investors uh, globally now, and um, there's very much no country in the world now that doesn't have um, Chinese um, uh, relationship in terms of trade and investment and, and otherwise. So it's here now today, and at the at the same time. Uh, U.S.-China relations have probably never been worse, um, and you can correct that. If, but um, it's certainly at a, a very, very low point, with very little signs of improving. And also, the question of Taiwan is really moving to the fore as well for a number of reasons. So, why don't we start there, Bill? I'd love to hear what you're thinking about that, how you describe the situation, and where uh, you expect things are, are heading. Well. Uh... China basically copied the earlier Asian miracle economies. Uh, And uh, they have been miracles. Uh, The effects on the populations of these countries have been the most miraculous. If you look at South Korea, Taiwan, Singapore, uh, and now China, these were among the poorest places in the world. And 
and now they they have uh, decent living standards. Uh, uh, China's a partial exception to that. They still have a population about the size of the U.S. population that, that lives in very primitive economic conditions. But in all cases, it's been absolutely heartwarming to see how people have gone from being hungry, uh, from being illiterate, from not having housing, to having all these modern things. And they tend to be about four inches taller than they were, than their parents were. Uh, that's true of Japan also. Uh, to me, that's the most important thing, the human part. Uh, they all started as uh, with uh, leadership that had uh, Marxist-Leninist views. Um, Zhang Jingguo in Taiwan, and the son of Chiang Kai-shek, was actually a member of the Soviet Communist Party. Park Chung-hee uh, almost lost his career and his freedom for being too closely associated with a, a, a communist leaning group and, 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 and one that his brother led. And then they created a great economic takeoff, which lasted for a generation, 10% uh, a year for all of them. And then they run into a situation where originally a, a simple, relatively simple economy. Uh, you know, peasants, landlords or managers, uh, road builders and cheap socks manufacturers, all of a sudden becomes this incredibly complex economy with thousands of software sectors and hardware sectors and and and, and the this society and the politics become equally complex and these highly centralized uh economies and, and, and polities just don't work so well anymore. So in the case of the smaller uh Asian miracles, they accommodated complexity by becoming much more market oriented. And, and by having elections, real elections. In China's case, and I wrote a book, a second book called China's Crisis of Success in 2018, and said China's heading into this kind of era of political and economic difficulties. And the, the big companies get, that are connected to the government get into trouble. The overall finances of the state get into trouble. There are lots more demonstrations and lots of political stress. Uh, and, and growth rates drop. Uh, so uh, uh, China followed this pattern up until Xi Jinping. And but Xi Jinping has decided to fight this tide of complexity. And to, to fight it, to move to greater central controls, uh, both of the economy and the politics, 
uh, you're facing all the the pressures of a, an educated middle class organized society with leaders. So you have to really crack down hard, and so that leads to a very different outcome than in the smaller Asian miracles. Uh, China's now in that period that I predicted of, of uh, somewhat slower growth in the smaller economies. They, they slowed down to 7% for a few years. Uh, China a bit more than that. Uh, and then they t- typically settle at about 3%. Uh, and by the end of this decade, I'm arguing that uh, China will also settle this time at 3% minus all the political uh, controls and impediments that Xi Jinping has put on the economy. So I think uh, from 2030 on, uh, unless China changes, it will, it, it, it may well be the, the slowest growing of the nature economies. Now, this, this has lots of implications for the international relations issues that you mentioned, all the the Pentagon-related planners and so on. They oh, China's very good at growth. Inevitably, it's going to grow faster than the U.S. forever. It's going to swamp us. Uh, And this is the same argument uh, we dealt with on Japan. And uh, you had the same kind of uh, uh, status, anxiety, panic uh, in Washington uh, in the 70s and early 80s that you have about China now. Uh, And you also have the uh, exaggeration of uh, the malicious intent. Uh, It becomes an emotional uh, issue more than a rational set of policy arguments. So, um, sort of thinking about what you just said, um, a few things come to mind. Uh, one is, I think, we, you know, we all accept the importance of ideology. Uh, it's a, it's a very, you know, powerful organizing tool. Um, and in your work, um, some of your writings, you, you talked about. Uh, that many of the the leaders in the uh, Asian tigers were were motivated by Marxist Leninist ideas. I had actually never heard that before, um, but I think what you know was always apparent was those countries went from sort of quasi military dictatorships to more democratic, but um, often still um, uh, very highly bureaucratic states. Um, uh, in with perhaps industrial policies and, and mercantilist policies, etc. Um, but regardless of how we describe the ideology of, of the Asian tigers, um, as you mentioned, they all more or less followed a similar growth pattern of you know four you know four or five decades of really rapid growth, and then 
um, and then tapering off. And uh, some people could argue, you know, that's inevitable uh, law of numbers, or perhaps we can get to a certain level of, of economy. But in China's case, um, I don't, uh, I, I mean, I, I'd be curious how you describe the ide- ideology of, of China. Um, some people think, you know, um, to what extent is it a Marxist-Leninist state, you know, and, and perhaps there's a spectrum of that. It'd be interesting to hear um, how you would describe that. But um, I think another question is, you know, of how China and the Chinese Communist Party thinks of itself. And it seems that anyone looking at China now um, has a view that the Chinese government is actually quite um, confident in its in its system, in its ideology and political system. And it it has, uh, a, you know, they, uh, I think we can admire in terms of its ability, um, you sort of a command and control structure, its ability to mobilize uh, resources to, um, you could say, to achieve a consensus on, on other issues, on, on many issues. So there's a lot less uh, time and energy spent on, um, debating uh or just venting um or or sort of blocking and obstructing um than is apparent you know in in sort of more open and democratic systems and that gives china a real advantage um in regards to economic development um and other policies so um why don't we just sort of start there if we could sort of parse through a little bit of of the ideology and and, and what that means uh today and going forward well, China policies have been very pragmatic. Everything is couched in the language of uh, Marxism, Leninism, uh, Mao Zedong uh, pursued a kind of agrarian populism using the language of Marxism, Leninism. If we kill all the landlords, uh, everybody will be rich. Uh, we see this uh, in the French Revolution and all revolutions. Uh, and Marx would have found that absolutely ridiculous. Marx thought the peasantry could never be organized into a political force. Uh, he thought capitalism was a wonderful but transitional phase. Uh, the idea of somehow imposing Marx's ideas on this agrarian situation on was a stretch. Uh, and then, and and then you go to Deng uh, Xiaoping and Jiang Zemin, uh, and they say. How come our neighbors are doing so much better than we are? Meaning South Korea, Taiwan, Singapore, Japan. And so they, they adopt all those uh, policies, uh, basically copying South Korea and Taiwan and achieve the similar results. What they're concerned about uh, is maintaining the leadership of the party while pursuing very uh, pragmatic policies. And uh, under Deng Xiaoping, they abandoned the idea of uh, trying to promulgate uh, their system elsewhere. Uh, 
Mao had been promoting insurgencies in Thailand and Malaysia and Philippines, all sorts of places. They stopped that. Uh, and they get to the point where, as in Taiwan in 1979 and South Korea in 1979, the, uh, the central economic control and, and, and the, uh, the bureaucratic uh, political control start causing problems. And they get afraid that the party is going to lose its role. Uh, uh, Xi Jinping comes in and he talks all the time about the risk of the party going the way of Soviet party. Uh, uh, they were concerned that under Hu Jintao, the, the ministries in the central government were kind of spinning off away from what the prime minister's policies were and local governments were pretty much doing what they wanted to do and and students were forced to take marxism classes but they they regarded as boring and and a waste of time and xi jinping comes in to get all this under control uh, that's all based on fear that it was getting out of control. Uh, and Xi Jinping's whole personal role is based on uh, fear that the system will collapse and that his personal role will collapse. Uh, that's why he's so tough on, on every possible opponent, every possible organized group. Even if five women protest against being felt up in public in, uh, in Shanghai, uh, uh, it's a danger to the regime. <laughs> they have to be jailed. Uh, uh, it's this fear of chaos, this fear of civic society. Uh, uh, is trying to reimpose Marxism. Uh, as an organizing ideology, uh, but it doesn't work very well. The leading universities, they, these people could could work in an American university. They have different opinions on some subjects, but but when you read what they write, uh, it's very pragmatic. Um, and China has continued not to try to impose its ideology on other countries. They're perfectly comfortable with, with uh, Malaysian democracy, Indonesian democracy, Philippine democracy. Uh, they don't make any attempts to undermine South Korean democracy. They're, internationally, they're not an ideological state. That goes a lot against a lot of the rhetoric in Washington. Um, uh, so at, at home, the, 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 the structure ruled by the Communist Party is, is being shored up to an ultimate extent. Uh, Lenin uh, 
is the guiding principle. But uh, the functioning of Chinese society, uh, the, the thinking of people is not ideological in the way uh, was under Mao or, or in, in the Soviet Union. And foreign policy certainly is not ideological. Despite the difficulty, perhaps, in um, really defining uh, the ideology of China or the Chinese government, I think what we can all accept, uh, let me know if you disagree, though, is that the Chinese Communist Party is in firm control, has a high degree of legitimacy uh, domestically. It's not going anywhere, and it's 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 really has delivered a tremendous amount of, of value to its citizens in terms of rising living standards and opportunities. So there's no reason uh, for those of us sitting outside of China to somehow uh, point fingers at Chinese Communist Party and say, well, you know, you're, you're in trouble. No, the party is not in trouble. The, the, the party has delivered uh, extraordinarily on living standards for the people. The result is that the Chinese system is going to be around as long as we can see into the future. It does not mean that China will not change within that basic structure. Every 10 years, China has had a very different kind of government and set of policies. Uh, Deng Xiaoping and, and, and Jiang Zemin's movement away from um, ideological Maoism and kind of extreme socialism, to a total break. Hu Jintao's, Hu Jintao stopped the rapid marketization of the economy and started moving forward on institutionalizing the government and, and, and making it more democratic. And then Xi Jinping comes in and reacts totally against everything that happened under Hu Jintao. So uh, what's the situation now? Well, Xi Jinping has successfully eliminated every possible uh, opponent. And uh, he's broken the system of institutionalized governance. Uh, before every leader designated a successor, uh, Xi Jinping doesn't want a designated successor. He, that might be a challenge to him. He has overwhelming popular support. Uh, think of it as Trump's base times two because about 80% of the population strongly support him. But there's a problem. Most of the elite has serious grievances. The party people uh, have lost most of their power and much of their income. The government people have been subsumed into the party and resent that. Uh, the military people have been seeing the whole leadership cadre knocked off and 
much of it put in jail. Uh, the state enterprise leaders have, have lost half of their incomes. Uh, the universities are appalled by the, the repression of, uh, of their research, uh, and so on, journalists, lawyers. Uh, and it's very, very dangerous for a leader to offend almost all groups in the elite simultaneously. Uh, so two things. One, if there's a moment of difficulty for Xi Jinping, these elite grievances will come out. Uh, and two, because he has broken the succession process, uh, at some point in the five-year cycle of administrations, there could be a great succession crisis. And most importantly, after Xi Jinping, uh, there's likely to be another major change in the way the economy is managed and, and politics is, is structured. Uh, it could get much worse, it could get much better, but this speaks to what have been, to me, one of the most dangerous fallacies in most of the Washington thinking. And increasingly, get, oh, China's actually always been this way. And that's absolutely false. And it, it's locked in, so uh, things will always be this way. And, and that's just a complete misreading of China's history and of China's current situation. Uh, other countries need to be prepared uh, for very different China in the future. Uh, and, and instead of locking themselves into uh, a, a kind of Cold War relationship that, that would be very difficult to unwind, Okay, so that's a good segue, uh, Bill. So let's sort of think about here and now. Um, so uh, there's a couple sort of potential flash points um, internationally within Asia um, in relation to China. You have one is Taiwan. Uh, the other is sort of the, the Spratly Islands and, and what's going on there. And and potentially, you know, with Japan, uh, you know, with Senkaku, Daoyu uh, Islands. Um, there's other other ones as well. but Perhaps we just sort of focus on on East Asia, um, given uh, China's you know um, increasing power, uh, its ability to exert uh, its 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 um, its power, and also given the fact that um, in much of Asia there are these uh, unsettled historic uh, territorial claims, which we don't really see as much of you know in the West. Um, um, so, what do you see happening uh, in in those areas? On Taiwan, I think it's important to remember the history. At the end of the Chinese Civil War in 1949, uh, the Truman administration was just going to let the, civil, the Chinese Civil War go to its completion, which, which to everyone meant that 
that uh, the communists would eventually take, uh, take Taiwan, final defeat of Chiang Kai-shek. Then the, the Korean War happened, and the U.S. feared a global communist push, and, and so it cordoned off Taiwan. The cordoning off of Taiwan was a price that China has paid for for supporting the Soviet Union in, in the Korean War. And for years, the Taiwan situation was very dangerous. Uh, in 1958, there was talk, should we use nuclear weapons to defend Kimoy and Natsu? In the Nixon-Kennedy debate, uh, uh, Taiwan, particularly Kimoy and Matsu, were a, a major foreign policy issue. And then Nixon and Kissinger and uh, their successors through Jimmy Carter and Spigny Brzezinski saw an overwhelming strategic need to work with China against an aggressive Soviet Union. And the, the primary obstacle to being working closely with China was Taiwan. So they basically made a deal, sealed in 1979. We, we would not uh, have official relations with, with Taiwan. We would end the military alliance with Taiwan and pull our troops out. And in return, uh, China gave not a legally binding agreement, but uh, an informal promise to pursue a peaceful unification. Uh, and, and, and that agreement stabilized the Taiwan situation, and it made possible uh, the most successful uh, agreement of big powers in, in modern history, the U.S. and China against the Soviet Union. What's happened recently is the breaking of that agreement. And there are two aspects. One is that China's hopes for peaceful relocation rested on the Deng Xiaoping idea of one country, two systems, that uh, Taiwan could acknowledge that it's part of China, uh, keep its government, keep its freedoms, keep even its military, uh, its democracy with a Chinese flag. And when Taiwan initially rejected that, they said, we'll make it work in Hong Kong. We will make it work so well in Hong Kong that people in Taiwan will understand how sincere we are. And by 2047, at the end of the initial Hong Kong agreement, China will have matured economically and politically, and politically, that was always but to a point where, where people in Taiwan would feel more comfortable uh, 
having a formal association with, with the communist mainland. When Xi Jinping cracked down on Hong Kong, uh, took away all their freedoms, uh, broke all the promises that were made in Hong Kong's basic law about freedom of the press, freedom of speech, freedom of assembly, uh, no mainland interference in, in, in Taiwan's uh, uh, governing system. Uh, that happened before the riots of 2019. Uh, that utterly destroyed any possibility and even any fantasy that the Taiwan people would ever accept a, a closer political relationship with the mainland. So the breaking of those promises by Xi Jinping's administration was fundamental. Second, under Trump and Biden, the U.S. has broken all of its promises. We promise no official relations. Well, let's take one example, the most important example. Uh, Pelosi, the Speaker of the House, visits Taiwan, declares firmly, this is an eighth an official visit, very explicitly breaking the deal. Just as when Donald Trump took a, a phone call from Chiang Wen uh, after his election, this was a long planned deliberate signal that we were breaking with our promises about official relations. Uh, and Pelosi then meets with President Chai Wen, and immediately after that meeting, uh, President Chai's spokeswoman goes on Island YTV and declares, we are a sovereign and independent. Under any administration from Nixon through George W. Bush, the president would have spoken out and said, that's not our policy. We have nothing to do with that. It breaks our promises. It's unacceptable to us. But under Trump and Biden, the old promise is broken. And then Biden says four times, we will defend Taiwan. And the troops, by the way, are back in Taiwan in substantial number. And so we've broken that promise too. And so China now has a situation where its promise of peaceful uh, reunification is now nonsense. Uh, and Xi Jinping faces a situation of potential overwhelming nationalist backlash. Uh, people saying, you've let the United States break all of its promises and you really haven't done anything about it. That's unacceptable. This is the one thing that can cause Xi Jinping to suddenly lose his job. And this is, <laughs> this is a guy who's very sensitive about anything 
who can make it lose his job. Uh, so on, on both sides, we shattered that, that agreement that, that kept the peace. The peace that is the foundation for Taiwan's democracy, its prosperity, its freedoms. Uh, and we're back to the situation that we were before 1972. We're also in a peculiar situation uh, in, in the larger strategic context. Because remember, Kissinger, Nixon, were above, and, and Brzezinski and Carter were above all concerned about making sure China stayed split away from the Soviet Union. Well, now we, we have a war in Ukraine. And basically, by last December, Russia had lost. Ukraine hadn't been able yet to, to move forward and, and consolidate its victory, but Russia had lost. The only thing that could save Russia was China's support. And uh, so if you take the Kissinger, uh, Nixon, Brzezinski, Carter logic, this would be a moment to be very, very concerned about any uh, uh, bust out of our, of our uh, relationship over Taiwan. But the interesting thing is that under Trump and Biden, uh, there doesn't seem to be this kind of strategic thinking at all. Uh, so the year when we should have been consolidating Ukraine's victory uh, and making sure that the Chinese uh, were incentivized not to intervene, this is the year when we choose to have this, this great blow up over Taiwan policy and and the, the CHIPS Act, which is kind of a, a declaration of economic war. So the, the, the complete reversal of the strategic thinking, both of the previous half century uh, and, and uh, specifically uh, of how Taiwan relates to, to the, the situation of the Soviet Union and Russia. How do you think um, sort of the events of Hong Kong of, of 2019, 2000, uh, 2019, 2020, how does that impact the, the calculus over Taiwan? Well, if you look, uh, people in Taiwan were already very negative on the idea of, of a closer relationship with the mainland because because of the, uh, the repression of the mainland itself. But after the, after the crackdown on Hong Kong, uh, the polls just show overwhelmingly that the Taiwan people will basically unite around opposition to any closer polit political relationship. Um, and, and that plus the Pelosi visit uh, forced the Chinese leadership to 
rethink the strategy of peaceful unification. It's not, it, it's not going to work. Uh, so this is, this has created a totally different strategic environment, both on the mainland and in Taiwan itself. So, I mean, it sounds, I, I mean, I think more and more people are asking about, you know, potential conflict, uh, sort of a Chinese invasion of Taiwan is, is sort of something that is now sort of spoken about almost, you know, regularly as a, as a sort of possibility. Um, you can sort of understand from China's perspective, as you said, if they believe that peaceful reunification is is too difficult now uh, and it's so important to them that that would be something that they would um, consider more seriously. Also, perhaps if they think that the United States, um, you know, abandoned, you know, all its promises as well. But from the U.S. perspective, can the U.S. afford to allow, you know, China to be, I mean, Taiwan to be uh, not, you know, reunified uh, militarily, not peacefully, and and what does that do to the whole U.S. alliance structure in the Pacific? Well, the U.S. is determined not to allow military conquest of Taiwan. In the past, there's been a balanced consideration. We want to deter war. We don't want to provoke war. Now, if you ask any of the foreign policy leaders in Washington, they say, well, that's still the case. But in fact, the balance has changed drastically. The focus is on can we, can we win a war? There's almost obliviousness to the possibility that breaking these agreements, humiliating Xi Jinping, humiliating Beijing, risks provoking them. And, and I think that risk is incredibly high. Now, so if you want to, if you want to strengthen Taiwan, uh, and deter war. You strengthen the economic relationship. That was explicitly uh, you know, moved toward a free trade agreement, helped them. That was explicitly part of the agreement all along. We could have economic and cultural relations. You can train Taiwanese in the United States. You can't send special forces and train them in Taiwan, but you can accomplish the same. You can sell them good stuff, but if if you declare what amounts to alliance, if if you break the agreement on official relations, then then you're risking provoking a war, so, and, and, and that. That is the essence of the issue today in American policy. Now, if there's a war, or what, what kind of war are we risking? The Washington focus 
is first of all, that look at the capabilities. The general is going to testify. China's military is getting stronger. One day it might be stronger than us, and that one's great. That's just true. But then congressmen and the media and a tiny minority of incompetent military people equate capability with intent. Say, oh, by 2025, the Chinese are going to make 2027. And all the focus is on a local war uh, initiated by a Chinese amphibious attack. That's the last thing the Chinese want to do. There is no evidence in all. All our intelligence people have testified on this. Uh, there is no evidence of any Chinese planning for that. Uh, Xi Jinping said, you, you got to be ready for a fight. Well, that's what, that's what leaders do. They tell their military to be ready for contingencies. But an amphibious invasion of Taiwan would be ridiculous. There's no place to land. There's no Normandy beach. Every, every little strip of Taiwan uh, is a very hard place to land. Uh, the war would would totally destroy Taiwan. It would totally destroy the Chinese economy. So that's not what they're thinking about. If there were such a war, it would not be the localized war that all the Washington planners seem to focus on. Uh, military planners plan for the war that would be convenient. Uh, Sometimes it's the last war, uh, always a war that would be convenient. And the U.S. could only defend Taiwan by hitting bases, cities in the mainland. And China would retaliate against us directly. China would have no hope of success unless it hit Okinawa and possibly other places in Japan the first day. So we're looking at something more like World War in that scenario, not a localized war. So the Chinese are not thinking about that. Now, the Taiwanese senior military people are saying, look, the risk is blockade. Now, if China did a blockade, it would be a be very seriously damaging to Taiwan. They run out of food and fuel. Uh, pretty quickly. Mainland takes a tremendous hit. Two, they rely on the same transit points. So that's not what they're... The, the Taiwanese have a much better focus than Washington people. But that's not what Beijing is thinking. Beijing is talking about a slow process of uh, over uh, a period of 10 or 12 years. Yeah. Uh, entangling Taiwan in a network of, of economic and political and military relationships. So it's like a, a vine slowly going up a tree and moving along all the branches. And after a decade or so, the, the, the IV is pretty much in control of the tree. Uh, and every time there's 
some analog when you pull those numbers in. Uh, China moves a couple steps further in that direction. They they ignore the median line down in Taiwan Strait for their ships and their planes in a way they never did before. They they declare military exercise all around Taiwan in a way they never did before. They send the missiles over Taiwan. Uh, up to now, this has been purely reactive. Washington sends a delegation that we're not supposed to send. The Chinese react. And then we say, oh, all those aggressive Chinese. Going forward, it's going to be more of a plan. Ivy moving up the tree. Uh, they declared the right to inspect ships going through, have customs inspections of ships going through the Taiwan Strait. Each increment is very, very slow. Raises the question is the U.S. really want to have a war over any of these incremental steps? Uh, so that. That's the Chinese military strategy. The only way that this uh, local amphibious war in the Straits happens is because one more U.S. step makes Xi Jinping feel that his job is in, in danger, and he just has to react. He has to do something decisive or he faces an overwhelming uh, popular reaction in China against him. Unfortunately, one of the characteristics of both the Trump and Biden administrations is there is nobody at senior levels who has any sense of how Chinese politics actually works. No direct experience. They're all Middle East and Europe experts. Uh, and, and so they, they operate a, a kind of a theoretical cartoon version of China as this you know, totally in control, uh, totally aggressive, determined regime that, that reacts according to the calculus that people in Washington, Mike Pompeo, Tony Blinken, uh, Jake Sullivan, think would theoretically be the way China should react. So uh, related to sort of the issue over Taiwan and you know potential conflict there, um, you have really what's happened in the in the Spratly Islands over the last uh, couple decades. And um, uh, again, overlapping territorial claims. Um, and in China's case, um, and perhaps this sort of fits the theory uh, you mentioned of their sort of the military strategy, they've had this uh, slow but very steady uh, increase of presence in, in these um, historically sort of non-occupied uh, islands and atolls in the Spratly Islands, and, and they've actually uh, put, you know, military, uh, huge military installations uh, around it. And um, in the case of Philippines, you know, China occupied um, Mischief Reef, which was, you know, within Philippines uh, economic zone, 
Um, that Philippines took them to the UN tribunal, won the case, but China did recognize it. Um, so that's just as an example of sort of China asserting its interest in these regions where um, there are, as I said, you know, disputed, you know, claims on, on territory. And despite the, the announced U.S. pivot to Asia, there didn't seem to be any um, slowdown of, of China's ambition in these um, areas that are very important to international trade. So how do you factor that in um, in terms of the Taiwan equation or, or just general equation? And do you see a risk there for, you know, more conflict in the, in the Southeast Asia? But China starts out uh, seeing itself as a victim, as it was for 100 years before 1949. Uh, these Europeans and, and, and occasionally Americans uh, invading China from the sea. And China spent its whole history getting ready for land invasion. So they start building up a defense force. And as these things go, uh, and I know when they were still just trying to defend their coast, uh, people like Rumsfeld were questioning, threatening, and China, now we're, we're still under threat uh, of attack from the sea by these Western countries. But then as these things go, they, they overdid it. It's like the Japanese with their car companies in the 1970s. And they started out as this helpless little copycat. All of a sudden, they're so big, they're threatening. Well, China has become a bully. It's become very aggressive. And uh, a lot of the things they're doing are just absolutely unacceptable uh, to the U.S. and to the neighbors. And the critical turning point was 2012 uh, Scarborough Shoal in the Philippines. Now, Scarborough Shoal was officially incorporated as Philippine territory in 1939. Uh, after very careful uh, study by the U.S. State Department, the Coast Guard, the War Department, uh, all system that, that this was an appropriate thing for the Philippines and that there were no competing claims. There were no completing, competing claims. The Chinese nine days line, what, what actually at that time was an 11 days line, was almost a decade later, 1947. But well, the, the Filipinos find Chinese vessels not just fishing in their area, but but plundering endangered species like giant plants and try to put a stop to that. And China effectively grabs control. At that point, the Obama administration argues with the Chinese, one point thinks that it has an agreement for both sides to withdraw. But when the Chinese 
retain control, it, it makes a, a very conscious decision not to do anything. This is one of the great strategic errors of modern history. The, the Philippines are our oldest ally. Uh, this was indisputably Philippine territory by American decision in 1938-1939. Not reacting strongly at a time when the Chinese were relatively quite weak. Opened the door to all the other stuff. And that's happened. So that that was a turning point. The other turning point was over what the Japanese call the Senkaku Islands. Uh, the U.S. has always maintained that it, it, it takes no uh, position on sovereignty over them. It did turn over administrative control to Japan. Whereas after World War II, our inclination was very much toward toward the Chinese side. And uh, you had a stable agreement based on a conversation between the Japanese and Chinese leaders that it held, that it kept the peace for four decades. Uh, kick this can into the future. A right-wing nut, the governor, governor of Tokyo, finds himself needing to mobilize his base. And so he says, I'm going to buy the Senkakus from their private owner. Uh, a guy who hates China and, by the way, hates the United States. He's co-author of a book called Japan Can Say No, meaning to the U.S. The U.S. thinks it's a really bad idea. Prime Minister Noda, inexperienced in foreign affairs, uh, not a member of the LDP that normally governs Japan, says, well, I don't want to let, let uh, the mayor of Tokyo, or the governor, uh, outflank me in nationalism. So I'm going to buy the islands for the national government. And China warns this will cause real trouble. And Hillary Clinton's State Department tells Noda you mustn't do this. And he goes ahead and does it. And the Chinese react. So what do we do? Our tradition in these things is we don't we never forget who our ally is. But our interest is in keeping the peace. Ambassador Habib in, in Korea used to say, I've got two jobs. One is to keep the North from going South. The other is to keep the South from going North. George W. Bush in Taiwan, tremendously pro-Taiwan American president. But when Chen Shui-bin started doing things that could provoke war with the mainland, he said, President Chen, you're on your own if you provoke the war. Well, here, that's our tradition. We, we 
we provide a public good. We keep the peace. Instead, in this case, we said, okay, Japan's provoking, but we're going to consider one clause in our alliance and ignore the balancing clause. And we'll de defend Japan's uh, provocation to the last American. Um, multiple presidents, presidents have said that, multiple secretaries of state, and a unanimous vote of the U.S. Congress. By to the American tradition, that was an equally terrible mistake. Uh, this kind of, uh, it told China, for the only kind of controversy in China. Does the U.S. alliance system stabilize the region and make it possible for China to focus on economic development and thereby become a great power, or is it a threat? This settles that argument. We're a threat. Our alliance system is a threat. So this goes back to a very fundamental problem we've had in the new century of presidents who don't have experience in foreign policy. I admire so much about Obama. Uh, Obama didn't have any experience in foreign policy. And every major decision he made in Asia was, was terrible. Uh, and Trump, likewise, Bush got lucky. He was not a great foreign policy president, but, but he had great China advisors. And so he got China right. And we ended up friends with both Taiwan and China under George W. Bush. Biden has continued the tradition. He's not an experienced personally, but he doesn't believe it. Experience and direct knowledge of China is important. All of his top people are, are Middle East and Europe experts. Uh, so we find ourselves in the dilemma. Now, on the South China Sea, Biden has started to stand up more for the Philippines. And I think that's very valid and very important. The risks are much higher now because China has predominant balance of force in the region. Whereas if, if we had stood up earlier under Obama, it, it, it would have, it, it would have cut off a whole sequence of, of future developments. Uh, just a slight point. Uh, I recall on the Senkaku issue before the that escalation by the Japanese, um, you know, governors or allowing that purchase of the island. I, I do recall that. I think Japan was upset because China. They felt China was allowing a lot of vessels that were nominally sort of privately fishermen or other people going and planting, you know, Chinese flags and and that sort of thing. And and I, I recall that from Japan's perspective, that was, you know, that was sort of a, a provocation, uh, which then led to this to this big reaction. But it was um, Hong Kong and Taiwan people who I know, I know. Yeah, exactly. The mainland did not 
did not allow that. And on the ships going around there, Japan treats the Senkakus as islands with a big exclusive economic zone. If you look at the standards set by the, the Hague Tribunal, uh, the Senkakus are much smaller than one of the islands that they declare, that the Hague Tribunal declared was just a rock. Uh, the Japanese have made other claims. That there's a, a little island very far out in the sea, halfway to Guam. It's a tiny little rock, uh, you know, th three steps and you'd fall off the other end. Uh, and they draw, draw a huge circle uh, around uh, claiming it as an island. Well, it's not an island, it's a rock. And they claim that the UN has recognized. And it's not true, just as what the Japanese said about the, the 1970s agreement on the Senkakus, they, they denied, the Noda uh, government denied that there was any, any agreement. Uh, and they just, it, it's just totally dishonest. Every Japanese diplomat and senior government figure who was aware of that meeting with Deng Xiaoping has said that there was an agreement. So, there's a real problem with the Japanese claims. They're just as unreasonable as the Chinese claims are in the South China Sea. I'm not saying they're all unreasonable, but we, we take a tribal approach. Japan is our ally, so they can ignore the laws. They can ignore the history. Uh, China's our opponent. Uh, so, so everything they say is bad and wrong. Um, that's not the way a, a great power that wants a stable system behaves. That's not the way the U.S. has behaved in most of, of the post-World War II past. So this is a good segue. Um I think that, you know, you mentioned a number of times this conversation, and I think there's pretty widespread agreement outside of perhaps the, the quote unquote policy elite in Washington that the U.S. has made uh, mistake after mistake in foreign policy. And whether it's, you know, the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, I think there's, you know, uh, now there's uh, a fair amount of um, dissent over, you know, what's, you know, our, our involvement in Ukraine and and then you mentioned the sort of the failed uh, pivot to Asia, et cetera, and provocations of China. So I think there's pretty widespread agreement with it, even within the United States, but certainly outside the United States, that U.S. foreign policy has been largely unsuccessful and 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 uh, unproductive for for a period of time. Let, putting that to aside, China, on the on the other hand, seems to have generally been very adept and astute at at foreign policy and using foreign policy as a way to further its um, strategic interests. So I was just wondering if you could just talk a little bit about 
China's foreign policy and, and how successful it is and to the extent that it's made any major errors? Well, I, I think China has big successes and big failures on the negative side of the ledger. Um, it's it's excessive maritime claims in particular, in some cases, land claims, have created intense resentment on the part of North Korea, South Korea, Japan, Taiwan, the Philippines, Indonesia, Brunei, Malaysia, Vietnam, all the way down to Australia and over to India. They even took a, a bite out of Bhutan. I'm not sure that Sunza or Confucius would have recommended alienating all those countries at the same time. Now, many of them balance that kind of injured sovereignty with a desperate desire for Chinese money and fear of Chinese power. But the resentment is there. It's deeply felt. They have alienated Japan in other ways. They have, they, there was a time when South Korean public opinion was roughly divided on the United States being good and China being good. There were times when it actually tilted toward China. Not anymore. Uh, China's totally mishandled that. China has not uh, done itself any favors in Europe recently. It's its uh, economic policies uh, have got the Europeans back up, and, and and the Europeans are very angry about about uh, what's effective Chinese support for Russia on Ukraine. Uh, on the other side, China understands that in the modern world, the, for, the foreign policy game is economics. Uh, that's how Japan became a big power. That's how Germany became a big power. That's how South Korea became superior in North Korea. That's how uh, Indonesia became the leader of Southeast Asia. That's how China became so important. And what China has done with a variety of policies, but focus on the Belt and Road Initiative, they copied the way the U.S. won the Cold War. We created a a global a, a near global economic situation where uh, we created prosperity for ourselves and for our friends and allies put together through a combination of aid programs and World Bank funding infrastructure and the IMF um, setting ground rules and and uh, yet WTO expanding world trade and investment. So what is Belt and Road? Well, it's it's uh, banks funding infrastructure. 
throughout much of the world. Uh, it's a, a currency swap agreement that helps uh, designed to help people in financial crises. Uh, it's an expanding set of, of foreign trade and investment agreements that, that is the analog of, of the WTO. And by the way, they've continued to adhere to the WTO. This is what won the U.S. the Cold War. This is what created the, the, the U.S. position in the world today. Uh, China noticed. The Trump and Biden administrations didn't notice. They're opting out of all the trade and investment treaty expansion. Um, they're their uh, programs to support infrastructure in the third world are, are reactive to China. They're, they're small and they're not, um, they're not thought through the way the Chinese government is. Um, we're banning the, the WTO. We're, we, we, we don't support the International Criminal Court. We, we won't. We demand that everybody else subscribe to the Influence Agreement on Law and Disease, but, but, but not us. So China's having extraordinary successes in Africa and Latin America, Central Asia. Well, a policy that basically the copies U.S. success at a time when Trump-Biden policies, uh, and by the way, Trump-Biden policies on trade and, and on China in particular, essentially the same. Uh, Biden has used Trump's foundation and expanded it. Um, so our position uh, has weakened and, and and China's position is strengthened. They 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 have a lot of problems because world conditions and, and their own uh, failure to do proper due diligence have have uh, financial problems uh, on on all. All, all their loans everywhere. Uh, but fundamentally, uh, the, the developing countries see China as their champion, the way they saw the U.S. as their champion uh, be, before the last few U.S. administrations. And that's one reason why uh, most of them don't support the U.S. on Ukraine. Uh, so when the U.S. abandons its principles and and, and China paradoxically uh, takes them over, uh, the Chinese have wins. But again, uh, they have they have pretty big losses as well as pretty big wins. Well, um, that's so I've. 
somewhat sobering, but I am of the view that it's better to have a realistic picture of things than uh, false uh, optimism or you know ill-founded confidence. So uh, I really appreciate your um, your candor and as well as the the broad set of knowledge that you bring to these conversations because it is everything is interrelated, and um, so to sort of arrive at a general understanding of a situation is is not easy because we are dealing with a very, very complex uh, world. Um, your perspective, I think, is is a valuable one. Um, any sort of final thoughts before we conclude? Because I know I've taken a lot of your time. Just that we've gotten into a spiral with China that well, it starts with bad things the Chinese have done on intellectual property, on their subsidies, on Xinjiang, on Hong Kong, on the South China Sea. We have a right to be angry. But the kind of undifferentiated uh, hostility that we see in Washington, the drive toward what risks a war in Taiwan. We don't have to keep sending these delegations. We do have to keep supporting Taiwan with weapons and training and, and economy. But there's a, there's a lack of balance. If you look Listen to a Jake Sullivan speech. Now we'll cooperate where there's potential for cooperation and we'll compete. Uh, what we need to will oppose or we have to oppose. Oh, that's balance. And, but the, the concrete decisions and the mentality in Washington today are, are not balanced. And though we face a situation that has the greatest opportunities in world history, the, the years from the 1980s through the mid-2000s were the finest years of world history in terms of um, growth, of, of ending poverty uh, throughout the third world, of technological development, of a turn toward fixing the problems of climate and the environment, where China came around because Chinese success got them over a threshold. We got over that threshold in 1969. The Japanese got over it in 1970. China got over that about a decade ago. That's now the driver. We can make the world prosperous. We can fix climate change. We can clean up the environment. Or we can, we can have a trade war over the nuclear And the mentality, I'm an American, so I focus on what Americans can do. China is causing enormous problems. And we have to start with them. But the mentality in Washington is all on the risk side. And it, 
and it was completely, almost completely oblivious to the possibility that we are driving things along with what World War, along the side of what the Chinese are doing. And there are obvious things we could do to rebalance. Doing that is the most urgent thing in the world today. It's not there. Well, that's um, really going to be the focus, one of the key focus points for my podcast going forward, uh, U.S.-China relations, because of what you just said. I think it is one of the most important um, uh, developments in the world today. So that's why I want to bring people like you uh, onto the show. So Dr. William Overholt, thank you so much for uh, being with me, sharing your ideas. Uh, hope to have you back. Maybe someday I'll have Senator Pelosi on to explain exactly what she was thinking about her trip and how she feels about it. But we do seem to be living in volatile times, and uh, hopefully we, through you know discussion, we can sort of better understand where we are and help sort of guide people's decision-making towards a, a better future. So thank you so much. Thank you, Jason.